0: Sup y'all? We've got an amazing episode for you today. We have, as a guest, uh, AssetNote's own Shubbs. Shubbs is a recon legend and the creator of, really, the the most amazing recon tool the world has ever seen, in my opinion, AssetNote. Um, not only can he do recon, but he also does zero-day research, CVE reversing. He's just an inspiration in all areas of bug bounty. So I think you'll get a lot out of this interview uh, because I, I got a lot out of it, personally. Um, so I I don't want to delay you too much before we get into that, but I do want to tell you about something really awesome that came out of the critical thinking community a couple weeks back. Joel mentioned this concept of like creating a CVSS calculator that provides ways for you to escalate your bugs. Um, so how it works is you would go in there, you'd put in your CVSS score metrics and it would say, okay, you know, your bugs currently at a 68 but if you figured out some way to affect availability, you could probably get it up to a 7.2. Well, one of the members of our amazing community, Bebex, I think is the na- how the name is pronounced uh, on Twitter. That's at B-E-B-I-K-S-I-O-R. Created just this tool and it looks super awesome. I've been using it for my CVSS uh calculations, and I think you guys will really like it as well, you can find that at cvssadvisor.com. Now, as a part of this, uh, there's also a feature where you can provide suggestions for escalation types on common types of vulnerabilities. It'd be really awesome if you all headed over there and uh, provided some escalations that that could be used by the community to increase the efficacy of uh, their bug bounty, uh, bug bounty experience. Um, so with that, I hope you enjoyed the episode with Shubs.
1: If you include somewhere in your report that says this is a zero day, they're just going to tell you we don't accept zero days. Uh, if you if you don't include those words, ninety percent of the time they pay <laughs> you surprisingly. So like it's, I like it's I just it's, found it's, an RC in this. <laughs> it's, it's found an RC. It just happens to be there in this product. Who knows? Who knows? Like, <laughs>
0: All right, shoves, dude, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me on here. Of course. I, I, I'm i really excited for this episode because I I feel like I have looked up to you forever as a bug bounty hunter. And now to be, have you on the podcast, be able to pick your brain and talk about stuff you know, at a, at a high level is going to be really awesome. And I'm also excited for the fact that um, you are the most well-prepared guest that we've ever had on critical thinking. <laughs> I always like send out a, uh, a a doc, you know, hey, here's some of the things we're going to talk about. Please add anything you think would be interesting. And people are like, all right, sure, whatever. And then I come back to the doc today and it, there's like a whole, you know, section here. So thanks for putting so much work into prepping.
1: No, no, no problem. And like Justin, you know, over the years, uh, and And you, as well, Joel, like you guys have both been legendary in the bug bounty community. Uh, I should be looking up to you guys as much as you guys look up to me. So I, I really appreciate you having me on here. And mm-hmm. uh, I've been following along um, this whole journey with your podcast. and yeah, it's 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 honestly one of the best things in our industry so far.
0: Dude, that just warms the heart, man. and And I have to say, I remember I just have such a clear memory of sitting at my desk at uh, an internship that I was working at um, back in college. And I remember reading uh, write-ups from you, to, uh, looking at the original asset note, you know, the one that before you actually started as a company, right? <laughs> and just getting so inspired yeah. uh, to build a reconnaissance framework. And, um, yeah. and then, you know, that sort of reconnaissance framework that I built that, that came out of that was the thing that actually resulted in me getting my first bug which I used to <laughs> pay for my honeymoon. So, you know, what, oh, wow. Shubs, you have <laughs> That's awesome. very, very far-reaching effects. Um, for those of you that that haven't heard of Shubs, um, one, you're doing something wrong. Um, go to Twitter and <laughs> do any, or X, excuse me, um, and uh, look at anything. Um, Shubs is, is one of the most uh, well-known book bounty hunters out there. And one of the things that I had on my list for today that I wanted to talk to you, you, know, you about, Shubs, was... Um, this 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 piece that I think is really unique to you um, in, in that you have a very um, deep expertise in reconnaissance, but you are also one of the most talented deep dive hackers that I, I, I've ever met as well, right? I, I see you nodding there, Joel. Are you with me on that?
2: Yeah. Yes. I mean, there are so many times I can think back just like even in our like, literal own experience me and you working together shubs where we've done some insane deep dives on some really really cool bugs and i think like that's one of the best things that you do Mm -hmm. i think it's really relevant and you see it a lot with the asset network especially in the Mm -hmm. blog post but you can see like there's an insane amount of depth and breadth at the same time that goes into finding these types of bugs Mm -hmm. and the write-ups like really show sort of that like that mind process that goes on when you're looking into a bug and you're exploring a system for the first time and figuring out like how does this work? What are the moving pieces? How do I become almost on the level of an engineer when I'm looking at this tool to figure out where the holes are that I can poke and start to pull things together and, and build a bug out.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to pick your brain on that, Chubbs, because that's really y- unique. So I want to get a, a, sort of a personal history of you as a hacker. And then also, I want to I want to ask you, you know, what parts of that personal history do you think have led you to be able to do both reconnaissance and deep dive testing so well? Because it's normally, in my experience, what I've seen is one or the other.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the, the the history basically is like I was I was just working at Hungry Jacks making like six dollars 15 an hour. <laughs> Hungry jacks is the equivalent of Burger King in, in the US, right? And and like the first bug I got from PayPal was like one point five grand. It was it was enough for me to quit Hungry Jacks. The eight months I worked at Hungry Jacks, I made like eight hundred dollars, right? So it, oh. at that point, um bug bounties were like ultimately going to be life changing and something oh, that yeah, I wanted to sure. do. But 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 the reconnaissance aspect really comes from when I was competing with um, Nafi, out of all people, when when Mm -hmm. we were growing up, we were hacking together. And I was competing a lot with Nafi with reconnaissance. And he often had data sets that I didn't have access to, or he had certain data that I, I couldn't get. And this is where the whole idea of AssetNote came out, where it was like, you know what, like I can use all these open source data sets or, or data sets that are public and just get a notification as soon as possible. And hopefully that beats the overpowered data sets that he has access to. Right, so right. So <laughs> that was the original idea for, for AssetNote. And reconnaissance really became um, a, a passion when working on the right games bounty. Right. The Riot Games bounty was something that was just incredible when it came to payouts and, and resolution time. It's no longer really like that, unfortunately. Yeah. But back then, um, back then they would pay eight grand for a subdomain takeover, and oh, that is a, 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 and that's a really ridiculous. <laughs> that's back then. That's oh, that's honestly gosh. the most I've seen a company at that point in time pay for a subdomain takeover, and. The amount of money they were paying for critical bugs was incredible 20 30 grand it was really good i think Dude. today an equivalent bug bounty program would be something like epic games yeah um but but back then um right games was really the the, the forefront of this wait to really do not um, really
0: stick it to them shoves you know like not only do you say they're not good anymore <laughs> but you also say you know what instead hack on their competitor like <laughs>
1: it's it's i mean <laughs> unfortunately it's true like i i mean i love right games and i still yeah. want to submit vulnerabilities to them but they don't have the resolution time and the bug bounty amounts that they used to have back then mm-hmm. and i think there's you know various reasons people move on there was an amazing manager that worked back then um on the bug bounty program his name's david rook i don't think he's necessarily managing the bug bounty program anymore i think there's been internal changes and things like that but just from a from a bug bounty hunter perspective, these days I don't spend as much time on right games um, as as a bug bounty program. Mm, mm. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's where the reconnaissance kicked off. That that was the incentive to be good at reconnaissance was so high. Mm. Uh, at eight eight grand for a subdomain takeover, that's something that you know really changes your perspective on reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd imagine so.
2: It's really funny that you that you mentioned the whole aspect of competing with naffy because I I, I had to check <laughs> because I did I I was pretty sure that you changed your name, but your your hacker one name now is Shubs. But when you started right. when I, when I first knew you, your username was not naffy <laughs> Yeah,
1: and it, it was it was a funny inside joke for a while, but I, mm. I recently changed it to Shubs because you know I think times change and stuff. We had a lot of fun back then sure, competing. Sure. Um, and and yeah, I mean. To answer your question a bit more, Justin, about mm-hmm. you know how do, how am I doing the reconnaissance side and also deep diving? Yeah. I guess all of this deep dive experience really came when Uber as a program got established.
0: Okay, so and that's, that's when great. When Uber got established, I, I had that in the notes. Yeah. I was like, you know, de- the, I've seen you deep dive the heck out of Uber, and I've seen you you know do recon stuff on Uber. But a lot of that is deep dive, and then you know you did the recon and Riot Games. So look. You know, I I did my OSINT. That's the, I'm feeling good about
1: that. <laughs> You're very accurate about that, and and I guess the the thing that maybe people might not know is the reason why I even bothered mm-hmm. targeting Uber so much and why I spent so much time on Uber. The reality is, I had an ex colleague of mine. His name is Matthew Bryant, oh, and he dude, moved from guy. Bishop Fox to Uber. Yeah, he's an amazing individual, one of the best hackers yep. I know, and um, he he moved from Bishop Fox to Uber and. I was like, "Well, how can I like stay in touch with Matt? You know, let's just submit bug reports to Uber, and he can respond to them. That's that's a it's a great way to stay in touch. That's great. So that's um, I really great. had this, yeah, I had this personal connection where I enjoyed finding vulnerabilities in Uber at the a, a, and and seeing Matt's reaction and seeing what he thought of these vulnerabilities. So um, that was how I initially got into Uber. But what I found was Uh, The more time I spent on Uber, the more necessary it was to get deeper and deeper into the application stack. And if I wanted to find more vulnerabilities, I had to get comfortable with things that most people can sometimes be uncomfortable with, which is like um, really deep JavaScript analysis work, basically, Um, which which a lot of people can shy away from because they feel like it's just like a three megabyte blob that they have no idea what's going on. And and it's so complex and they don't know where the variables, what, what, what references what and how to find the API endpoints and, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's really where it was. And then suddenly at some point, Joel started working at Uber. Mm-hmm. So at that point, <laughs> I was like, that's even more of an incentive to start submitting more vulnerabilities to Uber. There we you know, go. So um, it's kind of been that common theme uh, along the way.
0: Yeah, pull up. It's really funny you say that. Go ahead.
2: No, well, it's really funny that you say that because usually when I have friends who work at a company, that is like number one reason why I won't hack on their bug finding program (laughs) (laughs) because I just assume that they found everything.
0: No, dude, you got to The inverse is true, man. You got to like pull a uh, pull a Tanner and Pete Jaworski and like submit a bug on Christmas Eve, you know, that makes him get up and go to the office. That's that's the real (laughs) friendship thing right there. (laughs) um no there's so there's so much to unpack from what you just said there shubs um one i would love to go in the direction of talking about you know your competition with with naffy and the way that you guys have helped each other grow as hackers and i also just want to talk about and maybe i'll just i think we'll go the first route but I, i just want to acknowledge that um one of the other amazing factors that makes you so different than a lot of other hackers is that your ability to stay in touch with people and and like be involved in all these various hacking efforts. Like I feel like every person I talk to they're like yeah and then I was just like popping these crits with shubs and then oh, I was building this tool with shubs. <laughs> and then I and then but while you're running a company like that's the other amazing <laughs> thing I'm like how the heck do you even do that? um so and i think that ties back into the naffy thing too because you know i think bug bounty has probably always been a pretty social thing for you right
1: yeah for sure i mean collaboration is is beautiful and i love it Mm -hmm. and i actually prefer collaborating over working by myself Um, yeah even if it's at the cost of half the bounty or whatever it may be at this point i don't even really look at the amount of the bounty i look at how much fun i'm having from the process and with the friends and whatever so on and so forth so I mean the the first part that you mentioned around um competing with nafi i think Mm -hmm. that was really successful because we both really motivated each other becoming better versions of of hackers and and there were many elements of reconnaissance that nafi has been you know extraordinary at as a hacker and i've definitely been able to i guess one-up each other each time Mm -hmm. when it came to riot games specifically so that was something that we, we we definitely spent a lot of time on um, but when it comes to um, being in touch with all these people and, and, and collaborating with people, I think that honestly, we just have such a great group of hackers in our industry. Like, you know, you've got the, the Sam Curry, the Brett's, Amen the Justin's, that. the, we the, the Joel's. We've just got so many great people that you want to spend time with, you want to hack with. And there's not enough time in the day. So it's 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 one of those things where, um, you know, it's, it's not been so difficult to stay in touch with these people because most of the time they're doing some really cool stuff. Mm. Like if I just ask them, like, what are you working on? Like, what are you looking at? <laughs> and they'll be like, I'm looking at airlines today. I'm looking at the point system. I'm looking at, you know, whatever. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I want to hack that as well. Mm-hmm. So Wonder who you've I been feel talking that to. a lot of these... <laughs> Yeah, 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 I
2: have no idea who that could be.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. yeah, for sure. And it's, it's just, it's, yeah.
0: that That's um. that's great, man. And, and, and I think it, your mutual admiration for all the other hackers shows, and that's why everyone really wants to collaborate with you too. Um, so that's, yeah, that's really awesome. Um, so, I, I think one of the other things that, yeah, ahead, that I've Joel.
2: noticed is like, because your recon game is so, mm. so good, mm. um. Like, you know, you spent literal years, like, building out r- reconnaissance tools. And that gives you this really unique ability to find, like, weird stuff. <laughs> or, or, like, you know, just stuff that, like, really sets off that, like, Spidey sense. Your hacker Spidey sense. And that, like, oftentimes I find that I'll be having a discussion with you that's like, hey, what are you hacking? And you'll be like, oh, I just found this, like, weird thing. Um, you know, maybe we can, like, figure out a way to, like, get the source code or something.
1: And yeah.
2: then... It just like spirals off into this whole big tangent where we end up finding some crazy bug, and that just really speaks to like the quality of recon and the and the, the amount of time that's gone into like building these systems to find these things because the signal is like insanely high.
1: That's right, and and there's like it's it's really weird because um, I I often struggle with this myself where it's like should I go deep into an application or should I spend all my time on reconnaissance, and nine times out of ten I usually find that if you go deep into reconnaissance, there's something out there mm. on some server in like Dallas or something, some random mm-hmm. place in the US <laughs> or whatever, or in like some random country that's just sitting there, that's vulnerable, that's connected to their internal network that you had no idea, or it's within like four directories deep or something, or there's something <laughs> just crazy out there. And um, th- that stuff sometimes is really fun to find. And 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 it's, it's great, but I also understand what sometimes on live hacking events, there's no other option than going deep like for example yeah. we had that PayPal event in Barcelona mm-hmm. like as much reconnaissance as I did on Venmo I was not I was not finding anything like that I had to go deep into Venmo and I still mm. didn't find anything deep into Venmo but like Joel, like what you mentioned about finding one of these really obscure assets and going deep, that's really one of the best ways to 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 get a critical in any company. Like we did this for Facebook, uh, and I remember we found this random subdomain. It was like supernova dot something whatever, and it was running um, Teradici PCOIP Manager. And I remember when Joel. Was because one of the problems with 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 this was we, we obtained the jar file by spinning up an AWS uh, image of this in the marketplace, but when we decompile the jar file, there's going to be a lot of inconsistencies such that we can't compile the project. And I remember like going to Joel, being like, "Hey, man, like you're an expert at like Android and Java and all this stuff, um, and I need help like being able to debug this. I have no idea if these vulnerabilities are going to lead to anything, but." I need some help. And Joel like whips out his IDE. He starts fixing all of the problems inside this Java code, <laughs> one by one, fixing all the inconsistencies to the point where he starts getting it to compile, sets up a debugger port, gets it debugging and we just step through the code step by step until we find all these vulnerabilities. So, I remember these 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 memories where we've got, you know, all of this 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 rich like research that that's been done as a result, but you know, back then when I hit up Joel, I couldn't do any of what Joel did. At that point mm-hmm. in time, the, the 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 debugging, the fixing of Java, all of that stuff, I, I didn't have the experience to be frank, and and without Joel, there was no way that we would have been able to confidently say to Facebook that we had all of these vulnerabilities. So mm. definitely s- situations like that, and I think the only reason why today I feel a bit more comfortable with this stuff is because of the work we do at Asset Note with finding zero days, and we've had to become really good at this process. Mm. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. So so. That's great. And it actually segues perfectly into a, a section that I wanted to talk to you about, which is you guys have done so much, so much quality research at, at Note. I feel like, you know, every month or every two months, there's a blog post coming out um, where you guys have done something really amazing, uh, finding zero days in enterprise software mostly. Um, and I know that, you know, I know that you do a lot of that. And I also know that Dylan does a lot of this. Dylan Pinder. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but, um, you know, it seems like you guys have really found some amazing bones together. And one of the common threads that I noted across all this, because I'm, I'm not proficient in this specific area is the use of a dynamic analysis, um, you know, of hooking up a debugger to it and, you know, stepping through the code and breaking at certain points and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it, it, can you talk to me a little bit more about that process and how that's changed your approach to enterprise software?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, debugging is almost necessary when mm-hmm. when we're looking at complex enterprise software. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. And and we, we, we don't have the installation file or we can't install it like some of the Oracle software that's out there. And it's just too tricky to, to get up and running. But, right. but nine times out of 10, we're looking to get a debugger going because... Um, most of the vulnerabilities that we find, they, they can be really complex. And without a debugger, we can't figure out exactly, you know, what are the variables at a certain breakpoint? How do we manipulate them to get what we want um, and and things like that. So these days, um, most of the projects that we debug from a, I guess, just from a, a dynamic analysis perspective is mostly Java and projects. Mm, for mm. for Java, we use IntelliJ, um, which is you know you can get the community edition. It works fine out of the box, and you can start debugging things. For we use Rider, and that's also from JetBrains, and that's beautiful. Like honestly, Rider you can attach directly to a process. It starts de- decompiling everything for you, and you can start setting breakpoints quite easily. So. For the, for those two languages, that's what we use, um, and I think um, when it comes to binary analysis, we of, obviously we use things like GDB and things like that mm-hmm. to, to do, sure. do our dynamic analysis. Um, but but yeah, Dylan, um, he's honestly um, one of the the best researchers that I've ever worked with. Yeah, um, he's, we he's hired phenomenal. Him. He's great. He's he's so great that like sometimes sometimes he's very quiet. So t- sometimes he'll be quiet for six hours or something and I'll ask him like what's the progress and he'll be like, Yeah, I got an orth bypass or a shell or an RC. I'm like, dude, you could have told me earlier. I mean like on the edge of my seat this whole time, you know what I mean? So so um so Dylan's sometimes quiet, but he's he's very very good. It's I mean like his the background the is other very room, interesting. You
0: know, if you're not hearing them, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're getting into something. You know,
1: like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's 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 just so multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, he has um such good skills in Java and .Net. Um but he's able to get his hands quite dirty with uh binary exploitation and analysis as well, which mm. is something that's incredibly valuable for us, as you guys have seen like recently, the citrix vulnerabilities have come out, and it was like a race to patch diff them and find the the r c e so so without Dylan, we wouldn't have been able to do that work basically
0: yeah no he he seems like a really valuable addition to the team and and yeah, I'm always watching that that vlog very uh. You know, hopeful for the next one to come out. Do you have any any teasers for us? Any anything you want to tell us about coming up soon?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There, there was a MetaBase pre auth RCE that was announced um, around a week ago. So that that's that's the next thing coming up. It's done by myself and an ex-colleague of mine, um, and we're, we'll be releasing that on August twenty. Uh, that's nice. the slated. I saw you mentioned
2: that in, in bug bounty form for sure but somebody the one was like thing hey has I'm...
1: anybody <laughs>
2: somebody <and> there <laughs> like hey does anybody know anything about this metabase rce and shoves just replies yeah acid have found that <laughs> uh-huh.
1: yeah it was it was it was a really fun bug and i think people are going to really enjoy the chain because it was not straightforward and our final exploit payload has like maybe five or six different tricks in one payload Dude. so it's really really fun to fun to see um but but um you know, we'll see there's already Chinese um, researchers that have reproduced the issue and they've posted tweets of a blurred burp window of the issue. So if it drops before August 20, we'll drop our blog post.
0: Gotcha. Wow, dude, that's awesome. Nice. I, I, I love to get the little sneak peek here. So thanks for sharing that. That's that's great. Um, <clears throat> so I guess asset Note. so go, going, going to asset note, right? Um, just for those of you that, that aren't familiar. Asset Note is the, um, I guess, enterprise security s- software that, um, uh, I guess, w- w- how would, I'll let you do, describe it, Shub. Uh, it's a, it's a reconna- It started off as a reconnaissance software uh, in order to help you do asset management, but it's evolved to so much more.
1: That's right. So originally it was an open source project that was just to discover assets as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. But now, basically, what Asinode does is it discovers all the assets that belong to your organization on the external attack surface mm-hmm. and it continuously monitors it for exposures. So it finds security vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and indicators that 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 organizations can use but you know like the 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 difference between a indie homegrown open source bug bounty tool and an enterprise product that we sell Mm -hmm. to the largest enterprises in the world there's just so much in between so 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 it's different (laughs) it's just so different And and i you know i mean i see a lot of the the frameworks out there that get released and and all that sort of stuff and um they're excellent but i just think that like to to sell to enterprises there's just so many demands that aren't even things that are on people's minds when it comes to building software um, necessarily that that has been very interesting to to work. Yeah
0: yeah for sure so this product you know has evolved from recon to to asset management to asset management plus vulnerabilities and then you know also it seems like this research branch has sort of come out of it now is is that is that a supplement to the product is that kind of how you're seeing it or uh, why did you guys decide to start this research side of the of the company?
1: Yeah, we we just identified, like, we because we have access to all of this reconnaissance data for all Mm -hmm. of our customers, including the technologies. Right. We identified that we have this really unique opportunity to do security research in a way that's targeted towards our customers. Mm. And basically, Mm. our security research team has maybe, like, two or three functions. I'd say that the main function is satisfying the needs of our customers when it comes to when a new vulnerability comes out, like the Citrix RCE. Like, we've, we've got plenty of customers that hit us up being like, do you have a check for this? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. It, like, for, for a very long time, I was the single person on the security research team doing this sort of work. <laughs> but after a certain point, there's just so many different new vulnerabilities that are getting released that we need to stay on right. top of. We needed a research team. It was a natural progression in, inside the product. Like, we can't offer... A great like exposure scanning service. If we aren't staying on top of the new patches being released, new vulnerabilities being released, even new nuclei releases, for example, we need mm. to stay on top of because there might be something in there that you know might affect our customers. But um, the research branch also has a second um, purpose, which is marketing, and mm. you might have noticed that you know like at asset note we don't actually invest that much money into traditional marketing like we don't have like crazy campaigns for traditional right. marketing we don't have banners at black we've seen any or, billboards have uh, you seen rsa get, get private no.
0: rooms
2: yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> no, no none of that posters. sort of stuff
1: so <laughs> and and i mean guys like there, there might be a time in the future where we have to do that sort of stuff as the as the company progresses but but until now which is a 5 year journey since, till now we've relied on our technical Um, content to be the biggest marketing that we do and um, I can say it's been incredibly successful Um, I think from our technical marketing we get probably the most inbound leads I think if we could attribute them all Um, which is just you know as a business it's not a bad model
0: yeah no that's that's amazing go ahead Joel
2: yeah so which one would you say sort of drives The other one would you say that your research team is more like finding new things reversing patches providing those vulnerabilities like as soon as possible to your customers or your customers prompting you with hey we heard about this vulnerability or we're affected by this vulnerability can you guys check for it and then you the research team goes and looks into it
1: so so we, we we split up our research stream into two different things which is reactive and proactive and um, nice. the reactive stream um, is, is obviously like when customers reach out or anything gets released on the internet, things like that. We prioritize reactive over proactive, but we do definitely still have a lot of time left for mm. proactive mm. research.
0: Dude, that's that's nice. just what what an amazing service. What an amazing product you guys have developed there. And I, I love that it, it its roots, its origins are in security research in and in a thorough understanding from a technical level of what kind of stuff gets you pwned, you know, and, and, and going yeah. after that, like these CVE reversing, um, you know, sprees that you guys have gone on. And I, and I loved that piece as well about you breaking it up into reactive and proactive. I think that's really, really um, awesome. And I imagine on the proactive yeah. side, you know, what, what you're doing for that is, is you're looking, you know, you're looking at all of your, your customers, you alluded to this before, but you're looking at all of your customers, technology stacks. And I mean, do you just pick the one with the, you know, greatest number or are you looking for specific things like, okay, this is Java or this is .NET so I know I can hook up a debugger to it and have a better chance of finding a vault?
1: Uh, we'll be ready to target anything that has enough exposure for our customers. But like, mm. for example, we looked at cPanel um, mm. and that's written yeah, in Yeah, that Pearl. was crazy. And that's like uh, crazy and written in Perl and like all these C binaries and stuff is honestly a mess. Like as a security researcher, you go into that project and you're like, I really don't like working with this project. But but ultimately we'll we'll do anything. But yeah. but um the proactive side, just to note on that, um while we look at our customers' technologies, we're also not afraid to look at technologies that our customers may not be running now, but we might see it on a prospective customer or we mm. might see it on, on the attack surface in the future. Um and this this is often just popular software. So if there's any really popular enterprise software, that's usually a good enough target for us. Mm.
0: That's that's awesome, man. So
1: so I guess
0: that's, that's for you guys. You guys have a great, and we can sort of apply these principles to bug bounty as well. You know, we can look at the programs we're in, we can fingerprint the technologies and we can do the same thing. Um, but specifically from the CVE, you know, reversing perspective, can you speak to how that could help a bug bounty hunter and what kind of skills they would develop as well as, you know, what kind of results they might see if they invest more time into um, yep. zero day research or more specifically CVE reversing?
2: And, and yeah. just to tag on to that a mm. little bit, can you also maybe talk about the amount of time it takes oh, and yeah. sort of what the input versus output looks like on these types of things?
1: Yeah, I would say that um, most CVE reversing work doesn't usually lead to an immense amount of bounties if there's a lot of patching going on. But sure. for example, if you were to take if you were to take the base research for example, um, then I think you could potentially get a few bounties out of that. Um, I when it comes to inputs and outputs i mean it really just depends on every project every project can be you know, it, Like, for example, for Citrix, there was no information that they provided in their advisory that would even mm-hmm. hint to us where this may be located. It wasn't until we had other people in the industry publish more things like Bishop Fox mm-hmm. that we saw, okay, there's some more information here. We can work with this and find potentially what, what they're referring to. And, and there's always the problem of silent patches, which is mm-hmm. uh, probably the most frustrating part of oh this gosh, whole yeah. CVE reversing game. Um, where they 'll release an advisory for an r c that 's critical, but they 'll patch like five other things in that same release that they don 't talk about so i mean there 's a lot of there 's a lot of variability when it comes to whether or not we 'll find what we're looking for in the CV reversing project, certainly it's much easier on Java-based and .NET projects. When it comes to binary-based projects, that's where it gets really difficult because you're right. suddenly now you're you're diffing the bins, and there's like just so much you know so much to go through that's very esoteric and very difficult to understand at a glance. So it's easy to miss things in binary projects, but. There's this intersection, right, with with web and binary when it comes to appliances, like you know, VPNs and firewalls and things like that. And we we have to spend more time on this sort of work because um, ultimately these products are exposed on the internet and can lead to a shell right. on their network. So by nature, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, from a bug bounty perspective, I think the most profitable thing to do is find zero days and report them to programs. But there is a lot of controversy around that, as you guys yeah. all know. Yeah, and, let's, and, um, let's let's uh, let's yeah. start
0: that conversation. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I,
0: um, yeah. I, personally, I personally think there's a lot of value, almost like what AssetNote does, right? Uh, but from a bug bounty perspective of getting your hands on a a vulnerability with advanced notice. Right. Because, um, you know, the patch cycles, especially for some of these bigger companies, um, they're going to be a little bit longer. And, and um, it's hard to track down all your assets as, as, you know, as the asset list grows and grows and grows. Um, and so, you know, by nature, if you get a couple, you know, months head start on, on oh, this this is going to be released and, you know, just a heads up, you're vulnerable. Uh, I think that adds a lot of value, and I think that's something that companies should pay for. Whether it should be, you know, their full max crit, or whether it should be, you know, some bonus or some lower amount, um, that's you know to be determined, I guess, by the by the company. But uh, that's my position on it. Do you guys? What What do you guys think?
1: I can't hear what Joel thinks. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's hear Joel. Okay. So
2: from a from a company perspective, yeah. Um. It's a, it's a it's definitely a tricky situation, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I see both sides a lot better than I think some other people in the industry do, mainly because I'm both a bug bounty hunter and, like, a app AppSec engineer. Yeah. So from, like, the company perspective, it's very tricky when you're using a vendor product and you get that reported as a vulnerability because mm-hmm. the reality yeah. is that all you can do is wait for the vendor to fix it, especially if it's a zero day. So there's no actual... I mean, you can like turn it off or, you know, there are like certain preventative measures you can do, but you can't actually fix it until the company fixes it. And all that you would be kind of expected to do is tell the company, hey, we got this zero day. Do you know about this? And if the company says, no, we don't know about that, then it's like, you're in a weird spot where you've kind of ruined the researcher's spoils and also alerted the company. And now the company's like, hey, why don't we know about this? And it, but like if you don't report it then like you're kind of like missing your ethical boundaries so it, it's very very tricky from a researcher perspective i think you should just report it to the company and then go ham like that kind of sets your ethical liability a little bit lower because you've told the company now it's up to the company to fix it if they fix it really fast and they tell all their customers and the customers update it really fast then good job but you've you know, notified, and now it's kind of fair game for you, at least, I think. And then whatever happens, happens, right? If if companies start telling the the vendor that their product is vulnerable and they've been receiving this zero day, then the that's kind of on the vendor now because the vendor hasn't fixed it fast enough or n- now the customer is hearing about it. So I, I think it all kind of goes back on the vendor. But as a researcher, the main thing that I would want to do is make sure that I've at least told the company and then spray and pray, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I, I want to hear, I've got so many things I want to say about that, Joel, but I want to hear Shubs. I want to hear Shubs' opinion first.
1: Yeah, Joel, I agree with you. You reported to the company first, and then you reported to the bug bounty programs. But man, like in the last few weeks, I've even had a situation where, you know, it's been really gut-wrenching because I had this pre-auth RC, reported it to the vendor, then reported it to a, a handful of bug bounty programs. And, um, the mistake that uh, you know that 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 was made was I didn't tell this vendor that I'd reported it to these bug bounty programs specifically, and as a result, they they wrote this like email to me where it was like you know gut wrenching, and they were like you know AssetNote became the best people we knew to just those guys, and I was like ah shit, like I didn't really mean for that relationship with the vendor, but but this is the game, like this is this is the zero day zero day game, and at the end of the day, what 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 I find surprising is. I mean, their perspective on this, they, they're welcome to have their perspective, but the vulnerability in question, if I went to an exploit broker, I think I could have sold it for fifty to to $100,000 probably oh, yeah. for that, that vulnerability. Now, in this case, it's really, really surprising because in the bug bounties, I must have made like two or four grand. That's like a very mm-hmm. small amount sure. of money to be making from this. At the end of the day, we reported the zero day to the vendor for no cost. And this was zero day research that we did that definitely cost us money. Absolutely. So it was our vulnerability that cost us money to find, and we report it to the vendor for free. And then we report it to bug bounty programs after we've reported it to the vendor. At mm-hmm. that point, I'm really struggling to understand where, like, you know, where we've gone so wrong in this equation. When ultimately we've we've just tried to report it to programs that have this issue on their attack surface. I think there are a few nuances also, just quickly on on what Joel has mentioned about this, is where like you should try your best not to report zero days in cloud products like SaaS products onto other companies because there's really no resolution at all that a company can do. Like you, you talked about the preventative measures. That's possible. You can add a WAF rule. You can shut it down. You can yeah. n- segregate the network, things like that. When it's like a, a an XSS on a... <laughs> that's a zero day in... There's like very little that a customer can do to prevent that from being exploited on their their attack surface so yeah that's yeah, where yeah. it gets trickier so so it's really funny but hold on <laughs> it's really right, funny fine. that you say
2: that because i can think of one or two instances actually more than that where a researcher has reported something and they say hey we've been doing a lot of research and we have this zero day in cloud product here's a giant link that just like pops an xss or something and you're like okay <laughs> now what <laughs> like what do i do <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Yeah. So I mean, like, on one hand, I feel that and I and I understand what you're coming from as well. You know, Joel with like, okay, there's not really a lot the company can do. But wouldn't you still want to know? Like, it, like, you know, that, that that's where I kind of say, like, when people put in their in their policy, that they don't want zero day reports, I'm like, that's really silly, you know, maybe define something that's like, all right, we'll pay a medium for or maybe we'll you know, decrease the severity by one. So if it's a crit, you know, we'll drop it to a, you know, a medium or, you know, but something like that. But even in, even in cloud services, you know, with, with the way that same site cookies are working nowadays, if you, if you are able to compromise a domain, uh, you know, a subdomain within a company's, you know, n- domain, then you are able to do so many more different attacks than you would be able to do before. You know, it's a really, it's a, it's a real problem. Um, And so that's kind of why I'm an advocate for doing something like, yes, we'll take the zero day reports, but we're going to maybe lower the bounty, maybe not lower the bounty, depending on the impact. And if we do have to pull it offline, if it's an RCE on a VPN appliance, right? You better pull that shit offline and just tell your employees <laughs> to, to get, you know, a, a different way into the company for that time being. Because, you know, if you get popped there, that's very, very high value. And we all know anybody yeah. who's ever conducted an external pen test knows, you know, as soon as you get in and you get to the or external to internal pen test, as soon as you get in, that's it you know like there's it's almost never segmented in such a way that you cannot just get literal keys to the kingdom once you get in inside so i don't know that's my thought on it
2: yeah so so shubs i'm curious if you have any experience like on both sides of like the delivery i guess of these types of things especially with like zero day reports because i think one of the important things is that if you're reporting something in like a cloud software or even you know an on-prem software that is a zero day that you're also giving them almost like a security team would recommendations for how to fix it since it's a zero day like how can you prevent your prevent it or protect yourself and all that kind of stuff to sort of ease that delivery have you found that doing stuff like that helps
1: yeah it definitely helps but um i've also found that if you explicitly say that something is a zero day in your report you're less likely to be paid that's yeah. just like if, if if you if you include somewhere in your report that says this is a zero day, they're just gonna tell you we don't accept zero days. Uh, if you if you don't include those words, ninety percent of the time they pay you surprisingly. So like it's, <laughs> like it's, I just it's, found it's, an RC in this <laughs> it is, found an RC. It just happens to be there in this product. Um who, owns and they, it? who they knows? tend to you pay know? You. Who knows? Know. Like how this happened, <laughs> but uh, and uh, and this is more about the bug bounty economic side of things and the strategy side of things. But but generally, when it comes to um, reporting zero days, we we like to have a uh, some sort of remediation option without the official vendor patch. Like one of the Ooh. things for us at yeah. Asset we don't put any zero day in the platform unless we've come up with a workaround. So for 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 a lot of things, we can come up with workarounds. But when it's things like VPN appliances. No, nah, we 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 cannot come up with a workaround that's that good at least. Like we can come up with sometimes firewall rules, things like that, but many cases we'll actually write like the patch diff for the fix and we'll provide the patch diff uh to say this is how you fix it, if it's like something in PHP or you know, something in Java or whatever else. But but um many cases we, we can't provide any good remediation other than like modifying web.config rules, modifying your HTTP server, reverse proxy config, things like that to, to prevent access to endpoints and things like that. Yeah. That, yeah.
2: That, that's really interesting. So you mentioned bug bounty economics and I wanted to dive into that a little bit actually, because um, we had a really interesting discussion recently in a discord server with some other bug bounty hunters about, how there is definitely sort of an aspect of metagaming to bug bounty. And I'm curious sort of what your take is on that and uh, about sort of some of the bug bounty economics that exists around how to, I don't know how to say this nicely, but how to make the most money with your reports and do you spam or do you go for only highs and crits or like, how do you, what, how do you view the sort of the bug bounty economics?
1: Yeah, this is, this is a really tricky one. I mean, um, There are some things that align quite well for the program owners and bug bounty economics for the bug hunters. The number one thing is writing a a, a fucking good report. Like that's, that's the number one thing where both the, the program owners are going to appreciate it. And from an economic perspective, you're going to make the most money. So I, I definitely focus a lot on that, but there are definitely times where I, look, like I haven't figured out the magic solution yet. Cause every program is different, but like, I'll find like 20 XXEs, right. And I'll be like, how do I report these? Do I report these <laughs> one by one? Do I report them in one report or do I report one? Wait, see if it gets patched, see if they patch all other 19 and then report another one. So so this is this is the, the hardest hardest part of like this strategy and bug bounties, because you never know which direction it's gonna go in. Because you know, on one hand, if you report all 20 separate reports, there's a slim chance that they might pay all 20 reports. Right. If you report all of them in one report, they're probably just gonna pay for that one report. If you report one, wait, report another after they've patched the first one. There's a pretty big chance you're going to get the second one and third one, fourth one until they figure out there's a systemic problem with their with their software so so yeah. and, and this is really tricky because this is where ethics come in as well it's like it's not just about bug bounty economics anymore it's about ethics because it's like do you actually want to secure the company? Are you actually trying to improve their security mm. or are you just trying to make money mm. and and if the answer is no, I'm actually trying to improve their security, then I would say option one or two is probably better either separate reports or one big report. If you're just trying to make money, then option three is clearly better in mm. many cases, like where you report slowly, right? And, mm. and and this is not something that hackers usually like to default to. Hackers want to get their money as soon as possible. They don't want to be waiting for a year to get 20 XXEs paid out. This only happens when a bug bounty program has treated you unfairly in some way or form in the past, where you've re- you've done this 20 reports and they're like, you know what? We're duping all 20. We're just paying you for one. <laughs> Then in the future, yeah. obviously bug bounty hunters are going to be like, you know what? I'm not going to report the twenty. I'm going to see if you catch on, and if if you do, then sure, you fix the twenty. If not, I'm going to get as much money as possible. So it's it's this weird thing. It's about like relationships, economics, ethics, all into one. Just about how you report bug bounties. Like it's it's, it's just mm. it's crazy because this is some of the stuff that goes through my head when I, I find a lot of vulnerabilities. For yeah. a single, program. yeah. So it sounds
0: like a very, very specific scenario with when you find 20, <laughs> 20 XXEs. No, but I, I think that was really, I think that was really well stated. And, and I think, you know, the way you thought through that is, is really solid. Um, Uh, there's so many different intricacies to it and there are going to be people that are going to optimize for their money and there are people going to be optimized for for security and bug bounty is all about incentives right you're incentivizing the hacker to hack on your program and you know there's incentives on both sides to maintain the researcher relationship and that sort of thing um and I think this sort of quandary is very important um, for the programs to address in their policies, right? These are the kind of things that that companies need to start putting in their policies. The the piece of okay, what happens if I have twenty XSSs? Do you want all of those right away? Do you you know do you want all of those in one report? Do you want those in twenty different reports? Am I incentivized in any way to put them in one report versus in putting you know spreading them out over time? Because at the end of the day, the company needs to you know, outline that for the researcher. And so we can align our incentives and the researcher might know, hey, I'll get paid for like, you know, two and a half of them or, you know, five of them or whatever. Uh, But that's better than sending in 20 reports, which takes time and effort and then getting duped back to one or or the opposite of putting them all in one report and then just getting paid for, for one.
2: Yeah. I'm also really curious how the deep dive, like when you deep dive a program and you have a really long lasting relationship, like for example, with Uber how does that change the way that you report things? Because I know a lot of times when people are really, really familiar with a program and they've spent many years or many months hacking on that program, they won't report everything because oftentimes they'll realize that certain things that may be lower impact or may not just be like really nestled into the security model of that company don't matter enough to report, but they will matter in a future report. And so they're not, they're, they're making like certain decisions where they're like, I'm not going to secure this, this company with this bug, but eventually I will secure them with this and another bug. And how does that sort of play a role in the way that you report things?
1: Yeah, de- definitely a huge role. Happens all the time. Things like um, open redirects or iDoors specifically um, are, are major things that uh, I will decide to to, to skip reporting in lieu of a future report. Like one example, if we think about Uber, right? There's this huge problem with Uber and IDORS where you need to know the UUID of a user in order to then discover further vulnerabilities, uh, further IDORS and things like that. Know anything about now, that, Joel? Um, <laughs> that
2: that was definitely not the number one impact reducing modifier. <laughs> that was, yeah, oh, yeah, we have UUIDs, so you need an IDOR for that.
1: <laughs> yeah but 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 dude if i was going to find an idol and this has happened in the past where i can go from like an email or a username to a uuid then and it's just the uuid in many cases i sit on that until i can make that even more impactful so i've done this like uh, in, for uber in the past where we've gone from and it's so great because the POC finally comes out, and the POC is like, enter the name of the person you want all the PII for. Yeah. <laughs> like a, I just take a video, and it's like they enter a name, they press enter, and it's like which user out of this use, list of twenty users oh do you want the PII for? And sick. they enter that one, and then suddenly there's all the PII. So, so that's that's the kind of poc that I'm really excited about. But that that takes like a lot of time to get to, and in many cases, it does require sitting on certain bugs that you find. And and Uber is particularly interesting, like you know, just uh, heavily brute forcing their GraphQL schema to find all of these really weird, like, queries and mutations that, that can lead to these issues. It's just, it's been so incredible seeing the transformation of Uber and the technology stack over the last five years. It's just gone from different technology to different technology, and now they've ended up in, like, React, Progressive Web App, GraphQL. That's like the final, and then they've got like you know Presto DB and you know Pinot, Apache Pinot and like all this stuff. So they've just you know really changed over the years. Um, so it's been really interesting to see what they, they they get up to.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's I think from a program perspective, having something like that is almost like keys to the kingdom, because especially if you have reported that IDOR that like leaks, you know a UUID for a user or something by, by like phone number or email address. You can refer back to that report in so many future reports and say, as I demonstrated in blank, it's possible to leak this uh, UUID, which makes it, you know, one step away. Or you can, you know, if that report is still open, you can report a bunch of other IDORs that use a UUID that then reference back to your open report that leaks a UUID. And that can increase the impact of all those reports. Um, And, just like having that knowledge of a private report that that shows that impact makes it so much easier to demonstrate impact for other reports because it's no longer theoretical. It's something that you've actually done and you've actually reported and the program now knows that exists and it could exist somewhere else.
1: That, yeah. That's a really good point. I don't think I've tried to refer to old reports like that. I've always tried to find new stuff to be like, oh, this this works again. Um, but that, that's that's <laughs> a really good say, point. At, I should a doing At live that.
2: hacking events, that's something that we did a, a ton where we would okay. uh, we would go back and we would say, oh, we know that this is possible. Or like wh- when we're trying to determine impact, what's like the worst case impact? Well, we, we know what those worst case impact scenarios are on the internal security side. And so there's like persistent problems or pre-existing problems that you know, like automatically increase impact based on a class of bug. Like if it's an SRF, you know that that SRF can get blank data or whatever based on the network conditions. Yeah. That That's is basically point. what you can do as a bug bounty hunter is mentioning that, oh, this is something that existed before, it can definitely exist again. And the impact has been proven.
0: Yeah. Dude, we've we've seen that. I, I've seen that specifically in one live hacking event. Um, there was this endpoint that leaked just all, all sorts of IDs. It was actually leaking paths. Right, it wasn't it wasn't leaking just the IDs. Who's leaking the full paths of anyone hitting you know various endpoints? And dude, that bug got passed around like candy at that event. It was probably <laughs> it was probably freaking you know worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in escalations, right? Because everyone was like, see see this report. Even if they didn't have access to their port, you know, he would say, put in your report. See this you know report ID, right? And people would, people would reference to it and be like, oh, that's where you you know that's where you get the IDs from. So those sort of gadgets, you know, we've sort of talked about this a little bit on the pod before, but those sort of gadgets, super super valuable. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. We're 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 getting close to uh, end of time here, so I, I want to be I want to be conscious of your time, Shubs, and and the block that we have. But I have to ask, we've had a lot of people that are interested specifically in. Um, bug bounty plus entrepreneurial ventures, right? Um, And I can't think of anyone better than you to talk to about this. So, you know, coming from being a hardcore bug bounty hunter into, um, you know, an entrepreneur running a successful company, can you talk a little bit about that transition and what kind of skills apply and what kind of, you know, anti-synergies you see there as well?
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think um, one of the the really cool things about being a bug bounty hunter is sometimes you just have to be willing to do anything that's necessary to move forward. Whether Mm -hmm. that's reading three megabytes of awful, ugly JavaScript or whatever it may be, but you've got to do the task at hand. And um, it's not that different when it comes to running a business um when running a business there's just a thousand things to do and and sometimes you know you might feel that you know you 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 could be spending your time on more impactful things like security research or whatever mm. but at the end of the day these things still need to get done and we need to move the business forward so as an entrepreneur all i can really say is um two things really is pick the right co-founder if you're going to co-found the business and mm. i'm very fortunate my co-founder michael he's someone that is you know excellent. He's he's a hacker by trade, used to do a lot of iOS hacking. And he has a ton of experience in enterprise sales. He has a ton of experience in running a sales team, running teams in general, doing management work that I had no experience in. And um, without my co-founder, there's, there is no way that that this business would have been possible. And vice versa um, is what we say to each other all the time. Mm. Um, but the second thing is be prepared to do anything that's necessary. Like There should be no work or no ego that prevents you from being from doing things that 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 you might not want to do at the end of the day like um, running a business is just about you know providing a a really good product or service to your customers and there should be nothing that stops you as a founder from being able to do that um, when it comes to ego or comes to things like that so you know just to give you an example today I still respond to maybe like eighty percent of our support tickets, which is like you know wild. Like, why yeah, am I responding great. to support tickets? I'm <laughs> five years such in. Such a grind. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's such a grind. It's crazy. It's so much work. But um, and and sometimes it can be you know quite difficult to 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 respond to all of these. But I know sometimes that one of the superpowers we have in being this small company that we are is if we provide extraordinary support to our customers. Th- that's one reason why they're not going to leave us for one of our larger competitors like a Microsoft or a Palo Alto or whatever else um, and the other thing is I'd probably say lastly is just stay in touch with with the engineering side of all of this so if you are a technical co-founder um, you should still be able to write to the code base mm. if you want to five years down the line you shouldn't like you shouldn't as a cto let's say for example you shouldn't lose touch with the engineering side of things like you should still be able to contribute to the project and be able to make changes where necessary or at the very least understand what's going on um it shouldn't just be all someone else's responsibility and now you can do ctoe things whatever that means right so there's 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 definitely that and uh, sorry last thing titles mean jack shit Dude, keep them okay? coming man keep keep them, like titles mean jack them, shit keep them coming like my my co-founder, he's CEO. He's he's mm-hmm. he's leading the company. I'm CTO. We never saw each each other as CEOs or CTOs. We were never that before the company started. The titles mean jack shit. We're willing to do any work that's necessary to get this business moving forward. You know, my 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 co-founder often does product design work. He does you know a lot of lot of different different pieces in in this business, and and so do I. And that's because. As a startup, we, we have to be able to be working in this capacity to to move things forward. If if people start thinking, oh, I'm just X, I only do X at this company, then then suddenly you're 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 you've got you're restricted by what you can achieve. Um and most of the time if you put your your mind to it, you'll be very good at something eventually. You might not be amazing event in the beginning, but uh with more experience, you'll be very good. Um See, I guess those are my, 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 my common points. And I think also I just want to last thing note that there's a lot of luck required. Mm. to to actually be successful. Like I'm not going to discount the amount of luck we had when we started AssetNote. It was the right time that the industry was starting to look at attack surface management. We we started to build this whole notion of attack surface management and, and whole segment was developed as a result and people started selling this product. We had a lot of competitors that also came into this. We had large companies that came into this like Mandiant and Google and Microsoft with RiskIQ. So... There was a timing element to this that was not predictable there was a lot of luck involved even going back to the very beginning of asset note i was about to abandon the project and we had matthias carlson um who you know he's been in the bug bounty community for some time he reached out to me and he said your project is amazing we should continue work on it and he got his girlfriend who was a project manager at the time to manage the project with us without him i wouldn't even have continued like building Dude, this so the amount amazing. of luck that was involved to 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 get to this point is just monumental right so that's, it's something that i always yeah. recall um it's not just about the hard work and the effort there is a, a certain amount of luck involved in all of this as well
2: yeah yeah no i i think that's so true i mean even with my own career like the whole reason i'm in bug bounty at all was because i happened to do ctfs and i got to like a ctf championship and one of the vendors who was sponsoring it happened to get my resume and then they were like hey do you want to interview and i happened to interview and the person who sat across from me at my desk in the office in new york city was cool boss who was a, like a facebook hacker like way back in the day and he was like hey man you should do this mobile ctf and i was like it's all luck you wow. know it's <laughs> like like i just happened to have this guy across from me there's you know i think there this happens so often in life where you see like big case examples where they'll be like some company that, like, started from nothing and just, like, became something. Like, Asana, right? Like, just, like, a little side project that just, like, developed and developed and became this huge, huge, big, like, vendor product. And, um, you know, there's just, like, so many other cases where that didn't happen, and you have to acknowledge luck mm. if like you're gonna like be realistic about like how you got there, you know?
0: Yeah, and for all of you people in the comments, you angry people in the comments that I can already hear saying, man, I'm just not one of the ones that has luck. You get <laughs> luck, you get luck by yeah. doing shit. You can
2: create your luck. You
0: you yeah. get luck by putting yourself out there and making opportunities. You get luck by having friends like Matias who who will, you know, help you when you need help. You get you get luck by taking a step out and making that company, right? and And failing and then moving on to the next company. Company and you know it, it so it's possible for anyone for sure but when we look back at it it's very easy to see all the places where <laughs> in our career we could have gone different trajectories um and that's just that's just what a blessing that's that's the ride we've got right
2: yeah yeah it's amazing um and i mean that's like how we know each other too. right it's all just like luck <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like the chances that we've we been like you know cross paths at these live hacking events and like you know, it's it's crazy. Yeah.
0: So so th- that was a great answer, Shubs, and I I, I really it almost brings it brings a little bit of a tear to the eye to hear you talk about the whole journey. Uh, you know that you've been on for this whole time with Acid Note. Um, it's really really cool. Um, I, I did I did want to go back to the the question, and I wanted to ask about again about those anti synergies. Do you, do you and and you know if not, nothing comes to mind, no worries. We I've got plenty of other things I can pick your brain on. But is there anything that a bug bounty hunter or, uh, or a hacker should should be aware of that might be ingrained in them it might be a default for them. And then as they transition into entrepreneurial stuff, that they need to be aware of that's different in that area that might cause a problem.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's definitely some things like I think, you know, I think <laughs> one of the things is um, as hackers we we like to be very pragmatic. We like to think mm. logically. We like to think step by step. Sometimes. Um, there are many cases when it comes to sales, customer support, or negotiations, where this sort of mentality, it can work, but it may not be the correct thing to to do in in whatever hand you're dealt. Like sometimes... You've got to rely on gut instinct. You've got to rely on, you know, different ways of approaching the problem that may not just be approaching it step by step. Mm, like, for mm. example, if you're negotiating, that's definitely something where you can't just capitulate to everything that 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 they want. You have to think a bit more creatively of how you can get to a deal without necessarily being in a position where you've just capit- capitulated mm. to everything. So mm. there is like a different type of thinking sometimes, especially even in customer support responses. Like... Yes, you might have a bug in your product, but you can't always just go to your customer and say, "Yes, we've got this terrible bug in our product mm-hmm. we 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 have to be a bit more strategic about that. We have to think about you know what are we doing to fix this? when is it when is it going to be fixed? How are we going to respond in a way that you know minimizes the customer freaking out about this bug in the platform for example mm-hmm. so the, the, there are there are these different things, but I think a lot of this um I think you know, even being an amazing bug bounty hunter or spending a lot of time on bug bounties before I started my company, I was still so underprepared for what the five years that have brought me this company in, the, in this company. And there's just so much that I've learned on the sales side, the business side, and just generally uh, running this company with my co-founder. I've learned all this stuff because uh, my co-founder has this wealth of experience that he's brought me into mm. and I've been able to experience it and and iterate on it with him. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that it's really important to, to recognize that you do not know everything about running a business and be mm. okay to look for help or to seek help or to get advice in certain areas that you may not be so good at. There's yeah. this whole ego element that I keep coming back to. And I know a lot of hackers can tend to have, you know, mm. sometimes bigger egos. And and True. if you want to run a business and it's a small business, this ego stuff doesn't usually work that well unless you're the one who's just doing all the sales at the end of the day. Uh, but if if it's not sales, the rest of the business, it requires this, I guess, this acceptance that you do not know everything and mm. you either might need to learn about something you need to read about it you need to go to someone ask for advice and you shouldn't be afraid to do that um not everyone's advice is going to be golden you don't have to take it you just have to listen to it see what 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 you think and move forward however you feel yeah dude yeah that's great.
2: In, in hindsight were there any things that you think you could you could have or should have prepped better before you know starting a company or, or things that you'd wish you'd read or anything like that, that outside of like the people aspect, you know, were were there things that you in in hindsight wish that you would have learned?
1: Yeah, I wish I would have uh, understood the market a bit better and and done a bit more um, analysis with prospective customers about what they're looking for. Mm. Because um, when we started our business, I remember saying to Michael, my co-founder, I said, you know, the the minimum tier for asset note has got to be like, 1,000 assets or 2,000 assets. We only sell to large enterprises, but lo and behold, like now we have so many customers that have 200, 300 assets on the internet, right? So like that was like a complete misjudgment from my part about you know what we're what we're selling and who we're selling to, and and these deals are still worthwhile even at 200, 300 assets. They're still worthwhile deals. They're they're profitable. They're they're they're, they're great for us. Enough of them, we're making quite a lot of money, right? So initially, I didn't even understand you know, what the the plan of selling this was and how we were going to sell it. And I feel like Michael and I, we had to come up with different strategies of uh, like different business models as well uh, that we had to come up with over time where we landed on one finally, and that's worked very well. But I wish some of this stuff I did before even incorporating the business. You know, like mm. there was some stuff like this where I'm sure I could have reached out to some friends of mine and been like, hey, I'm thinking about starting this. What do you think about this business model? Like this, it, would you be comfortable paying this for this? How much would you pay for this? What would this look like if it was in your organization? Some yeah. things like that would be very useful because we were under the We had many assumptions about how we were going to sell this, what it would look like that ultimately were all proven wrong uh, with with running the business and realizing, well, a lot of people we're talking to, they don't actually have 5,000 assets on the internet. They have like 300 assets or something. Um, but then I guess the last thing is, um, and this is specifically for bug bounty hunters and hackers. If you want to build a product, spend a lot of time becoming good at engineering because engineering is fucking hard. Dude. like we 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 think that hacking is is hard, which is great. I agree <laughs> with you. hacking is hard. engineering, where you're building a reliable product that's consistent and 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 is is you know performing how you are expecting it to perform that is harder than hacking like that 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 is literally the wow. hardest shit I've done in my entire life and and people on my team who deal with this on a day to day basis, our engineering team managed by Sean. They're the people that today are dealing with this problem still for all of our customers. And, mm. and this is by far the hardest, I guess, thing that I had to do in this five-year journey was go from being a, good, a relatively good hacker to being a good engineer. Mm. And I still don't feel like I'm there yet when it comes to engineering. Like I still feel there's so much more to learn in engineering. It's never-ending. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it's the same in bug bounty hunting, but, but this is definitely something that I learned. Was engineering is very critical to this. And
0: and like you said in the beginning, it's it's not just scraping together some scripts like we do in Bug Bounty, right? You know, you're you're you know, SGPing files back and forth, and your Python janky Python scripts aren't going to get you to a, a reliable enterprise product. So there's I'm sure there's so much more there, and we actually do have an episode coming out with Sean. Um, I'm not sure if it'll air before we air this one, but uh, that's a that's absolutely amazing episode as he talks about you know what it looks like to engineer you know this huge massive beautifully architected recon machine that you guys have put together um and all the different pieces and you know and the way that integrates together so um with in light of that i was gonna i was gonna ask and i asked sean the same question for the hunter that is building a a reconnaissance setup now um, you know, you having gone through all of the, you know, many, many problems of, of you know, that you faced building asset note, what, what kind of advice do you have to to the bug bounty hunter that wants to build a, a continuous reconnaissance platform?
1: Yeah, for their I own use in Bug advice, Bounty, just to be clear. Yeah. Well, I think like Justin, I remember you came to me um, a couple years ago and you said to me, Hey man, I'm seeing all these people move to Golang. Mm-hmm. Like, do I need to move to Golang as well? Does this is this the right option to make. That's a great telling conversation. You, like, mm. Yeah, and it was just like, because I remember at that point, I was maybe two, three years into the asset note, um adventure, and we had migrated everything to Golang from the very beginning. So I had experience working in your stack that you're mm-hmm. familiar with, which is just like basic Python. Yep. You know, everything's pretty straightforward. You can understand it without too much complexity. Whereas our Golang stack for our enterprise customers, which can get quite complex with the number of microservices and things mm-hmm. going on. I remember saying to you like, choose whatever you're most comfortable with and what you can iterate in quickly on. It doesn't matter if it's Golang or Python or whatever. It could be Visual Basic like Eric does, right? It doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter what language it is. But but I remember you were like really happy with that because you thought that you had to move to a different language. You thought that you were put into this position where the industry is moving and the industry is changing languages, everything in Golang for various reasons. So I have to do it too. And... To be frank, I was the one in that position when I started Asino and I decided to move to Golang. There are many benefits that we got out of that, but i'm sure if we worked hard enough, we could get something working in python as well mm. um, it's it's not really the the distinction of how good the product is going to be and i see I see this trap a lot with you know people will rewrite things in a new language like they'll say oh there's xyz tool in this language i'm going to write it in rust now because rust is so hot right now and everything's amazing in rust but the outcomes are usually the same like usually the outcomes are very similar all the same sometimes there's speed differences acceptable i understand but at the end of the day are you going to learn a whole new language to get that bit of speed difference or are you going to build your systems in a language you're comfortable with that you can iterate quickly on so that's definitely one of the advices that i would give um The other one would be like, really think about your data sources. Um, As much as I would like to say that, you know, our reconnaissance techniques and, and all of that are a huge contributor, there's also a huge element where the data that we have access to is just overpowered compared to other. Uh, other people's data sources so that that sort of stuff if you start looking at things like passive dns if you start investigating these things and start understanding where you can get these data sources what these data sources look like how much you're willing to pay for them you're suddenly putting yourself at an immense advantage compared to almost every other bug bounty hunter out there and um i think one last thing is um just have an environment where you can quickly iterate code on when I was first building AssetNote, I did all of my programming in the equivalent of GitHub code build. So back then there was something called Cloud9, and I-, I used that to do all of my iteration. It was so quick. Like I was building so, so quickly. Today, you've got things like code spaces, I think, sorry, in, in-, in-, in GitHub. Mm-hmm. That's an equivalent of what I was using back then um, when I was building the very first iterations of Note.
0: Wow, dude. That was just a, a treasure trove of of advice there. Thank you so much for sharing that, and I, I remember that conversation very clearly, and I ju- I left that conversation like you said ecstatic, you know, with the results of what you said, and it served me well for the rest of the time, you know, that I was in the recon game, like being able to quickly develop code in Python. It, it was it was invaluable, and I think also one of the great things that that just came out of that conversation for me was appreciation for that, right? Because like if I had gone down the other route and I and I had you know written all this GoLang code, I might oh man, I, I used to remember when I used to be able to write code you know off the top of my head without even thinking about it in Python. That's that's great, but you know, and then I would have earned the ability to like, you know, um, yeah, appreciate Python, but without having to go to that through that difficulty and that route, you made me aware every time I wrote Python code quickly, how much of a blessing that is and how much of a yeah. you know uh, of a win that was. So thank you so much for your advice, man. That that really that really made a big difference in my recon game.
1: No, for sure. I'm glad you stuck with it, um, for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So I did have a couple other things. Joel, did you have anything else on that topic before we swing back into some technical content?
2: No, no, let, let's go back and do okay. it.
0: Okay, so I, I did have a couple more things that I wanted to ask, um, specifically regarding IIS, um, which is your bread and butter, it seems, right? You've done a lot of, you've done some videos on IIS stuff, which we'll link in the description. And um, what can you tell us about hacking IIS servers? What What do you have for the people?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think... I think the second you see an IIS server, you should, thank God, because it's the easiest thing to hack out of all the other web servers that are out there. You should be grateful. You should be grateful that you've, you've come across the presence of an IIS server. You see that blue page that comes up when you hit an IIS server? That, that should be your, your point in time where you think, I'm going to find criticals on this Oh my board. gosh, I love because, that. Because 90% of the time, like, like, it, like guys, if you think about every other web server technology, which other web server technology lets you guess partial files and folder names? There's mm-hmm. nothing out there like that. Like yeah. that, That's just ridiculous. And this vulnerability, this issue has existed for like 10 years plus. Like it's been around for so long and it still works on the latest version of mm. IIS. Mm. Like this is not even something that they're thinking about seriously fixing in future versions so far that I've seen. So there's that, right? You've got the ability to see partial file names and folders. With enough reconnaissance, you can figure out the rest of those file names and folders by doing some fuzzing, so on and so forth. Then there's all this other stuff that happens with .NET, and specifically with IIS and .NET, where you are able to get a shell if you get local file disclosure. Now, if mm. you if you if you get local mm. file disclosure and you read a web.config file, it has the machine key, the validation key, you're able to escalate that from just that to, to command execution. Again, the, the the only solution for this is you start storing these values in the in the in the Windows registry instead of the web.config file. Mm. 90% of the time, companies are storing it in the web.config file. And this is something that, you know, often leads to command execution once you get local file disclosure. Then there's the other aspect of this, where when you when you audit .NET um, products, you've got to deal with this whole idea of Windows shares and Windows domains. So let's say you find an SSRF. That SSRF on a, oh, dude, server on a .NET product is much more than just reaching a web server nine times out of ten. Mm. If they're using path.join, then in path.join, you can just do backslash, backslash, uh, and and put in like a Windows share backslash C dollar sign backslash. And suddenly, because of the Windows APIs that are being used for these network requests, Windows willingly shares the NTLM, net NTLM hash with your server. So you run responder on your server mm. and suddenly you've escalated an SSRF to a critical, much more critical than just being HTTP requests. So there's stuff like that. Then there's like, you know, I guess there's also this there's also this amazing thing with .NET and IIS where there's like a thousand different ways to drop a shell. Like when you drop ah. shells in IIS and .NET, you can drop shells with web.configs, with ASCX files, with ASHX files, with ASPX files. You can oh, drop shells that. in so many different ways. It's it's beautiful. And it's really great to be able to, to, to hack on, 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 on .NET IIS servers. And one last yeah. thing that I love, one last thing is if you're exploiting an XXE in in, an, in a .NET application, there is an XXE payload that is universal for Windows that uses a, a DTD file that's within the Windows file system that's yeah. always present in the Windows file system that will nine times out of 10 that you leak file contents when you probably shouldn't be able to. Dude, so th- these that, are all the different things.
0: That's that's sick. And I I want that payload. We're, I'm going to make a note right now. Get, get the XXE payload from shubs uh because that that seems really helpful i've seen some stuff floating around but it'd be nice to have it here you know and link it down in the description for the people that are interested dude that that was such a treasure trove of of knowledge I, i feel like dude i'm so lucky to be able to have you on here because i just like throw a little like you know question out there and then there's just like boom gold boom gold boom gold and we were actually just talking about the, um, you know, the, the share paths last week and how crazy it is that you get those NTLM hashes um, and, and that you can interact with shares, you know, when you have SSRF as well. Um, so that's, that's really cool. Really cool stuff, um, and definitely for those of you that haven't hacked on IAS stuff, check out short, uh, check out Shortscan, um, uh, you know Tilde enumeration tool, and then also read all of the write-ups that we'll link below uh, for Shubs on IAS related stuff. Because, um, like you said, man, I get excited when I see that that blue page, and I think most other hackers uh, should as well. Um, that's that's all I had on the list for today. Um, Shubs, do you have anything else you wanna you wanna share? Anything you wanna talk about? Where can we find you on on socials as well?
1: Uh, just two last things I want to share, and then we oh, can yeah. wrap it up. Great. One of them is when you see the blue page on IAS, do not skip it, please. Yes. There's something there. Like there's there's no reason they've just spun up an IIS server for no reason. Like like they, they they wouldn't just do that. Most companies have something there. There is something there. Please keep keep looking, keep finding it. Whatever, there's something there. And the second thing is um, just one other lesser known technique in IIS is mm. virtual directory, um, virtual like uh, path traversal to traverse into different virtual servers via virtual directories. So in IIS you can set up directories that are pointing to different servers. And if you use path traversal within those directories, you can see the web root of different servers. This is something that I've found um, quite common in IIS deployments that are complex. So they'll have slash SSO pointing to 10.1.1.1. And, but it's pointing to 10.1.1.1 slash SSO. So you can go slash SSO dot dot percentage two F. And then that will route you to 10.1.1.1 to the dock route. Ah, um, okay, so,
0: so it's your path traversing on the backend server in the reverse. That's proxy. right. Okay. That's right.
1: Yeah, this is similar to and an, Sam Curry's. That's
2: an IIS behavior specifically.
1: Yes, this is an IIS behavior specifically. This is very similar to Sam Curry's secondary context right. work. Right. Right. Um, but 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 then this uh, this can lead to a lot of crazy vulnerabilities because. In many cases, they don't expect you to be able to access the doc route of 10.1.1.1. Mm. Mm. And then you can just brute force and find whatever you want and 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 go from there. So that's the last tip that I I don't think is publicly talked about that much. So just want to give that to your audience as well. But besides awesome. that, you can find me on Twitter, um as infosec underscore eu, And yeah, um uh, if you need anything, you can reach out to me via Twitter. Dude, that's
0: that's super clutch. So do you know off the top of your head whether the uh, short name enumeration technique also works on that backend server. Then through the,
1: it does, dude, yeah, yeah. it does. That's it, it's is beautiful. It's yeah,
0: that's amazing. I gotta I gotta check that out. I'm definitely gonna look for that uh, for future for future IIS servers that I see. And and guys, remember if you see the blue page, go after it. That's that's Shub's takeaway <laughs> that he wants you to have from today. Um,
2: I need to go back to my recon data now. <laughs> same, bro. Same.
0: All right. Infosec underscore AU on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. Um, Joel, you got anything else you want to shout before we bounce?
2: No, that's it. I mean, thanks. I mean, thanks for doing this. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And just the wealth of knowledge that you have is so awesome. So I'm glad that we were able to share just like a little, little bitty piece of it.
1: Mm. Thanks for having me on. Really All appreciate right. it. Peace. Peace.